Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. start with a poem. This is by one of my favorite writers who lives on Quadra Island in BC uh, named Robert Bringhurst. Bringhurst. Quick. <clears throat> Bringhurst. Robert Bringhurst. The title is uh, Exercise for Beginners. What is the brain but the back of the face? Climb down from the elephant of the mind you are riding. Climb down and leave it to drink or to drown in the river. What stirs in the heart comes to rest in the heart, like dust in a cave. Thought is thought and not anything more. Seeing is seeing. What is, is what is. These three together are what they are and their total is one, which is what there is and is equal to zero. A is not A. One is not one. This too is a rule. Only in so far as one is speechless can one really think with words. Only in so far as one is speechless can one really think with words. Um. <clears throat> I've always imagined that this month is a practice period, but somehow it gets uh, marketed as an intensive. And one of the things you'll notice about this practice period as an intensive is that sometimes it's intense. And then it gets really plain again. And then it gets intense, 
and then it gets really plain. Sometimes this room is like a temple, and we have an altar, and we have incense, and we walk into this room maybe a little bit uh, in, a, in a bit of a different way than you walk into your apartment or you walk into your house. Maybe when you walk home and you open your door, you're a little bit sloppy and you just move through your dwelling in habitual ways. And maybe when you come here and you treat this room as sacred and you give it some special attention, you might move through this room a little bit different with more care and attentiveness. But then you'll also notice that you move through this room also in habitual ways and that you can go home from here and maybe treat your house like a temple. They both uh, fit together. And the idea of raising this room and your mat and your body into uh, a sacred temple is to give attention to the, the microcosm, even the microcosm of an inhale. And you raise it up in such a way that you can start to look with fresh eyes. And um, when we do the pranayama practice and when we do the asana practice, uh, you start to notice that you can actually feel layers of your experience when you give them attention uh, without words. And then when you start using words again, just like when you go home again, you do it in a different way. You go home in a different way after you've been here, I hope. <laughs> Maybe not. And you use words in a different way uh, in how you talk to yourself about your experience once you start to experience layers of mind that are underneath words. So the reason why this is called a practice period and not something like a teacher training is because what we're really learning to do is to take this period of time and really devote it to practice. But we're heading into Friday, which marks the halfway point of our month. And usually as we start to head towards the halfway point, um, we start to make our schedule mechanical. Oh yeah, I know what I'm doing tomorrow. It's plain. Oh yeah, the room. I walk in and I just throw my mat down, toss my cushion. Um, and we can start to lose some of the intentions that we brought here in the first place. So I just wanted to bring some attention to this so that if you're starting to plan to have like a busy week of adding things next week, um, just to really take a restful weekend this weekend and to really keep in mind that um, um, as we continue into this intensive, it will also become more and more intense. And then it will become plain again back and forth, and back and forth. <clears throat> we open up, and then we shut down again. Patanjali has a human head, and shoulders and arms, and he has a stainless white serpent's tail, which is uh, the kind of purity, or the Buddha nature, of our practice. But then he has this human head. And uh, although one part of us has the ability to really wake up, another part of us continually wants to shut down. Um, the muscles get um, strengthened and lengthened and become supple. And then uh, some of them don't want to be there. 
They want to be in the old habit, and they come and they shut down again. This is human nature, this opening and closing. And um, this is really what Dogen, which is uh, a 13th century Japanese um, Zen master, um, struggled with. He, had, he actually had quite a hard life. Um, Dogen's father died when he was three years old, um, and his mother died when he was seven or eight. So he knew something about impermanence. And when you have a parent uh, die, when you're so young, um, impermanence uh, becomes kind of the central meditation of your, your life as a young person. Um, the two people who love you the most and who mean the most to you um, are not there anymore. And um, we have to find ways of creating uh, parents for ourselves. And we become in that process hyper-aware um, of change, of impermanence. And um, he came from a, a family that um, expected him to go into politics. Um, and he, he left that. And some of you might, uh, I don't know as much about Japanese culture, and others can, can fill me in. But um, you know, in 13th century Japan, to, to walk away from uh, what your family expects of you is a pretty radical thing to do, um, especially if you sort of uh, jump through classes and want to become a monk, which is what he wanted to do. And he wanted to become a monk because he was really interested in impermanence and suffering and how, if things are changing, um, there can be any solid ground that we can live within. Has anybody ever felt this way? Uh, you have people close to you pass away, or you get separated from people that you love, and you wonder, how, how do you go on? Um, especially when you've experienced a lot of pain, you might wonder, like, why get involved with humans again, if you're just going to be hurt? on anything? Why be engaged with anything if it's ultimately unreliable? <clears throat> and he becomes a monk, um, a novice monk, and then when he's 13 years old, turning 14, uh, he's in the monastery and suddenly he's gripped by a problem, which is that at that time in the Buddhist tradition, there was this idea that everyone at base is a Buddha. But they just don't know it all the time. That Indra is a Buddha. That Ryan is a Buddha. Lindsay is a Buddha. Marcella is a Buddha. But uh, if I told you you're a Buddha, you would probably laugh. Oh, I'm just a sentient being. And so he had this question, and I'm just going to read you uh, his articulation of this question that came up for him when he was 13 years old. As I study the different schools of Buddhism, they maintain that human beings are endowed with Buddha nature by birth. 
If this is really the case, why did Buddhas of all ages, undoubtedly in possession of enlightenment, find it necessary to seek enlightenment and to even engage in any kind of spiritual practice? If people are already Buddhas, if you're already awake, if we're already interconnected, if we already suffer through impermanence and wake up over and over again through it, then why practice? We're already interconnected. We're already enlightened. Why should we practice? And some of you, I'm sure, have had a question show up in your life that has motivated you. I think for people who are more utilitarian, the question is usually, what should I do? What should I do with my life? Um, for people who have more of a kind of existential way of thinking about their experience, it's, you know, why am I here? Or maybe more pragmatic, and you're like, what is this? What, what is the purpose of this? I don't know about you, but, you know, I haven't lost my, my parents yet. Um, but I have lost people close to me. And um, I know that in that experience of loss, those questions that I had when I was little, they really show up again. Exactly the same question. What, what is this? What is this? The question for me that I've always thought about is, you know, what, like, I don't know how to phrase it exactly, but it has something to do with, you know, like, who is it that's experiencing this experience? This happened for me when I was five years old. Uh, my parents moved into a new house in a new neighborhood, and uh, it was a, quite a large house, and there was a dining room. And my mother's mother gave her this really old chandelier, and she was uh, taking Windex on newspaper, and do you know the smell of Windex? If I smell Windex, I go back to this scene. And she's standing on a chair, it might have been even a ladder, and she was cleaning off each jewel of the chandelier and then hanging it. You know how you hang each little piece of glass? And I was lying on my back watching the, the sun come in through these leaded windows and then hit the jewel and then spread out into what I then learned was Roy G. Biv, whatever it's called. <laughs> um, this prism, what is it, red, green? Red, orange, yellow, green, And I was watching her, smelling the Windex, watching the light, and then suddenly I became aware that I was aware. It was like, I think, maybe the first time in my life that I was aware of being aware. And then I realized that I actually couldn't be aware of being aware and watch the light at the same time. That I could only do one thing. I could pay attention to the light uh, spreading or splitting through this prism, or I could be aware of myself being aware. But I couldn't do both at the same time. It was like my mind or something couldn't do it. And I remember having this feeling at five years old that my life couldn't do that. 
not my mind, I didn't have that vocabulary, but it was like that life couldn't be aware of itself and be fully in an experience at the same time. And this question just kind of like gripped me. And in a way, it's never really left, which might be why I'm sitting here doing this month-long practice with you. And uh, to me, this question matters more than anything. And uh, I'm not sure if I can explain it logically. But I think for you, probably, you've had a question like this. And it probably comes from feeling split, from losing somebody close to you, from you get this question when you're not fully in your life, somehow. And then the question arises because the question's needed to pull you back into your life. And this is what was going on for Dogen. And I think this should be the way in for us, into Dogen. So he's not just another creative, literary genius or something, but that he's trying to talk about your practice. He's not a philosopher. He's not interested in metaphysical speculation or cosmology. What he's really interested in is, what is your practice? And if we're connected, and you know that, then what are you doing? Why are you practicing? And he's not trying to tell you why you should practice. He's trying to take you into the questions that you have in your heart and show you how practice can help you work with those questions. <clears throat> so that these teachings are not um, some kind of abstraction, but that we see through these teachings that Dogen is trying to resolve something really, really deep. <laughs> um, and if you, I think, look at any you know, person who has really looked deeply in themselves. I think Rene Descartes is a really good example, or the Buddha is a really good example, where what motivates them at first is a question. I would say for most of us, the questions arrive, arise out of the messiness in our lives, out of the mud and the places where our relationships are rigid and where our attitude is rigid and where we get injured in the body and in the heart out of, because of our rigidity and where we have no spring. And anybody who does body work will tell you that if a person is not also working with their mind, any kind of spring you start to create for them in their body, as soon as they start going back into their old psychological patterns, it all goes back again. We have to work on all the layers, on all the koshas, all the sheaths of the heart. So before we go deep into the Genjo Khan, I just want to remind you that this is a practical teaching for your life. This is something that you activate in your life. And one detail about Dogen that we're going to really focus on is that what makes Dogen's teaching quite different than many other preceding teachings is not just that there's a question, 
but that Dogen wanted people to take their insight and express it. And this is how he lived. And this is something that motivates me in building community more than anything, is our ability to take what we're learning and not wait for some final episode of enlightenment, but to take what we're learning as we're learning and express it, continually express it, activate it, turn the wheel. And when we do this, these texts or these sutras, they just start opening like flowers. And one of the uh, homework assignments that I'm going to give you uh, after today is I'm going to ask you to memorize sections of the Genjo poem so that you can really place them deep inside your body, inside your heart. Maybe you can pick an organ and put them in that organ. You know how people match like wine with food? <laughs> you can match different paragraphs in the fascicle with different organs. <clears throat> and lastly, um, we get up so early in the morning and we come here and we sit still. And um, we do this because um, we are trying to continually return to the heart of the matter, which are these questions, this ability to open up to a space where you don't know. Or as Robert Bringer says, only insofar as one is speechless can one really think with words. <clears throat> and this is where creativity comes from. This is where our expression comes from, this place. And we do this by really trusting in our practice, having faith in our practice. You know, some of you this month, I know, are going through a lot, falling off bicycles, um, passing out, losing friends, uh, missing people. Um, maybe your lover is out of town. And uh, things are coming up. And I think to watch where your old ways, which are sometimes helpful of analyzing what you're going through, kind of come in, you're trying to figure it out, you use your meditation practice to like solve the issue with her. Or with him. I'm going to sit this morning, and when I'm done, it's going to be clear, and, and the rest of the day is going to be amazing. Um, but to really trust that under the surface of that part of the mind, if you really trust in this practice, the techniques will start to take care of some of these unresolved and unconscious um, conflicts. Not necessarily solving them. You can't solve them necessarily. But the practice can help you relate to them from a place that's more creative. So to really have shraddha or faith in this practice and these various practices that we're doing. 
which start to combine together. And you're probably seeing now how they're starting to link together. Um, and it's not, I don't mean this in a naive way, like, don't think about anything. Just get on your mat and do your death. It's okay. That's not what I'm saying. But maybe your first response can be to, to really have faith that, this, that dropping into this month, this practice period, can really help you. So that you don't just keep at the same old problems with the same old answers. Um, one of the, the tricks with Dogen is that in titles and usually in the first two lines of every paragraph he captures the whole thing and then he has to kind of break it apart and rework it a little bit in case you don't get it right away but the Genjo koan Genjo means a, a fundamental point what's the point which is a kind of question isn't it What's the fundamental point? And koan uh, is, is a public record. It's actually what's used in the legal system in Japan to refer to precedent. When a precedent gets set, sent, set it becomes a, a koan. Um, and I actually really like this idea of koan. I'm not trained in the Soto Rinzai school of working with students on koan practice or working myself in that way with koan practice, although I've done a little bit. But I actually like to use koans as teaching tools for the public so that we treat a koan like a case precedent and together we study it, which can be just as intense. So Genjo koan is, is the public record of the fundamental point, which you know already because Grant is a Buddha. Tillman is a Buddha. Lori is a Buddha. And just because I haven't said your name yet, it doesn't mean you're not a Buddha. <laughs> but you might just be a sentient being. There are Buddhas, and there are sentient beings. And this is Dogen's first line, if you open it up and you, and you look. Um, and again, uh, this first sentence says everything. <coughs> As all things are Buddha Dharma, <coughs> there is delusion and realization, practice and birth and death. And there are Buddhas and there are sentient beings. Everything is Buddha Dharma. Buddha means awakened. And Dharma is a law. It's like universal laws, like impermanence. What do you do when you go down to New Orleans after this devastating oil spill? or after a tsunami. What do you do? Do you go down there and tell people, it's all impermanent, it's all changing? Or do you go down there and say, this is the cause of God? 
If you believe in God, he will help you through this. Or do you go get a blanket and hand it to somebody? You go get food and you hand it to somebody. Dogen is not trying to tell you that these big things like life is impermanent. Everything is Buddha nature. He's actually trying to hand you a blanket. He's trying to hand you something that is nourishing. But are you able to really take it in that way? Well, you can if you're in need. All things are Buddha Dharma. Everything is awake. Um, and there's also delusion. Don't you know this? There is delusion, which I like to translate as confusion. There is confusion. We get deluded. Yes, everything is awake. And there is delusion. And there is also awakening. Do we, does everybody agree with us? We know this to be true, right? There's delusion, and there's also awakening. I would say in all my closest relationships, those friends of mine can say, I have seen Michael in his most deluded and his most awakening, awakened. I've seen him at his best, and I've seen him on his knees. So this sentence is from the perspective of the Buddha Dharma. So from the perspective of someone who is awake, they look at reality and they, they say, everything is Buddha Dharma, there is delusion, realization, there's practice. There's birth, everybody agrees with this? There's birth and there's death. The inhale comes and the inhale goes. The exhale comes, and the exhale goes. Everything we, we rely on comes and goes. Um, and there are Buddhas. I hope that we all have in our lives some people that we've met that are more awake than us. Uh, if we don't, I, I don't know why we're practicing. We're practicing because we're inspired that we have encountered in the human body somebody who is a little less neurotic than we are. And at the same time, there are sentient beings, people who are just getting by and maybe are not so awake. I don't think we can deny that. There are people who live in delusion and their awakening is so small. And I think someone who's awake can see this. And maybe you can see this the more you practice. You start to really see how people are suffering. I don't know about you, but when I'm really in tune in my practice, and I walk through the Eaton Center, or I walk through my neighborhood, I can really see what's awake, and I can really see what's so trying to become awake but in strange and maybe sometimes unhelpful ways. Like their desire for awakening is so perverted that it actually shuts them down. When we want heroin, we don't want to shut down. We want heroin because we want to feel connected, actually, even though it, it's doing totally the opposite. But um, 
this is not really true. Dogen can't get away with this because this is the perspective from one side. And then the next sentence is designed to completely screw you up. Because now you say, oh yeah, there's awakening and there are sentient beings. And then Dogen says, no, 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 no. Neti, neti, neti. Or moo, 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 moo. Um, as the myriad things are without a central core, an abiding self, there is no delusion. There is no realization. There is no Buddha. There are no sentient beings. There is no birth and no death. When you are fully in your death, there is no birth and death. There is what's going on in those moments. When a baby is being born, he or she does not say, I am born. Shit. <laughs> well, they start crying right away because the wisdom does kick in a little bit. Um, and the mother, while she is giving birth, does not say, there is birth. She is fully in the birth. And then when the baby comes out, someone tells her, you've had a boy. And then usually they don't care, right? Like, they don't get it right away, boy, girl. Like, it, that's not the, uh, those of you who've had birth, you've, you've gone through this, mothers, you probably know this. That, um, these weird things happen. Like, for example, you, you give the kid a name. And I don't know about you, but I remember when we first gave Arlen his name, it was, like, weird <laughs> to, like, say that this whole experience we just had was Arlen. <laughs> you know? But then, uh, two years down the road, it's like, that's definitely Arlen. And nothing else is Arlen. So, if things don't really have an abiding eternal core because of interdependence, yeah, then um, there is no delusion. For who is there delusion? There is no Buddha and sentient being dichotomy. So do you see what he's done here? He's flipped it. He's flipped it around because he's doing work on you. He's saying, you've come with a question, and if I respond to your question from one side, that's going to be an answer. So I'm going to respond to it from two sides. And then you can't hold on to my answer. And like any good teacher, when you have a question that you're struggling with, they take the question, and then they hand it back to you. They hold it for you for like 30 seconds or three years. And if they're a really good teacher, they will hand it back to you. Joe Shu asks Nan Shuan, what is the way? Nan Shuan replies, 
ordinary mind is the way. What's the way? What's the path? The way, the Tao, Marga, what's the path? Ordinary mind is the path. So then the student's going to go away saying, okay, ordinary mind is the path. But this student is a little smarter and says, shall I try to seek after it? The teacher just said, this ordinary thing here, this, this is it. And the student says, so should I, should I go seek after that? Have you ever done this before? Shall I seek after it? Nonsense response, nonchalant response. If you try for it, you will become separated from it. Has anybody here ever been through the trauma of Valentine's Day? It's a little bit like this. Um, Valentine's Day is any other day, except then we have an idea. This is when I really show him how much I love him. But I happen to get my period, and I actually feel like crap, and I don't really want to make love, but I don't know how to tell him. So if we don't make love, then... uh, um, uh, he won't really know how much. So I'm going to forget about how I feel. And I'm going to really show up and we're going to make love tonight. And um, then, you know, you're having dinner, you're feeling horrible, the reservations were so expensive. And because you, they made reservations, now you have reservations about everything. <laughs> and, uh, and then the, the night starts unfolding and all you want to do is just go home. Um, and actually, he's probably fine. Because men are like this. They're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> they, they don't have high expectations. Um, you're the sentient being. And so then you're working so hard to kind of make this night happen for him. But like, he's okay. He's okay just flowing with it. Um, and then you set yourself up. Haven't you? Shall I seek after it? But the more you go after it, the more you become separated from it. I'll just finish this one. So then uh, Joshua was so frustrated. How can I know that ordinary mind is the way unless I go chase after it? And Nanchuan responds, the way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is confusion. When you've really reached the true way beyond doubt, you'll find it's as boundless as the sky. It's as boundless. Is it, is it Rumi who has this line, I'll meet you there beyond right and wrong? I'll meet you there beyond Valentine's Day. How do you feel? Um, just your comment about expectation, and um, I think that um, this, this the poem to me is, is, is like a is a is a metaphor for the paradox of our lives, or the lines we try to live. And when you were talking about expectation, um, having an expectation already. 
you know, some, something other than where you are. Yeah. Or yeah. At the moment. Yeah. So, Hear how Dogen responds, because he he's actually created, or he's pointed out rather, a paradox. Listen to the third line carefully. You can follow along. I think when you read it, it kind of like somehow sprouts better than just listening. So, yeah, tr try and read it and listen at the same time, because the the language is so good here. He's so careful. The Buddha way is. Basically, leaping clear of the many and the one. Thus, there is birth and death, delusion and realization, sentient beings and Buddhas. Yet, in attachment, blossoms fall. And in aversion, which is what you just said, weeds grow. In attachment, those blossoms that were attached to, the top of your inhale, that feeling when you get the top of the inhale and the heart is, a blo is blossomed, or that feeling at the height of summer, for me, it's like early July when my favorite flowers are out. Basically, anything purple. Um, I want that. And yet, in attachment, blossoms fall. Um, sometimes, actually, this happened to me yesterday. Uh, I picked my son up from camp yesterday, and... Uh, he was uh, soaking wet. He was in the lake. And um, he was covered in dirt. And he didn't want to take off his clothes because he loved being wet because it was so hot. And then I got him home and I took off his clothes and I was washing, you know, helping him wash. And I looked down at his foot and it was huge. It was like so long. It, and then I realized like his foot is starting to look like my foot. Actually, his foot's getting so long. And I've never seen his foot look like that before. His feet are so small and, like, still kind of chubby. And now his feet are so skinny and slender and long. And then I got a little sad. Because I wanted... I didn't... I want his foot to be, like, chubby still. And uh, I also know that, like, in a year, they're also not going to smell as good. As they now they smell so good, his feet smell so good. He can be in shoes all day long and his feet smell so good. And like when he's eight, his feet are not gonna smell like that. 
So his foot is a, is a blossom for me. Um, I like holding infants because their scalp smells so good. Does everybody know that smell? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, someone should, should market that. <laughs> you know how like when you go to subway stations, they blow like Cinnabon or whatever it's called through the, yeah? That, they should blow that smell. You can all, nothing smells like that. Um, and then you know when you're smelling it, especially like if it's not your kid and you've already gone through that, that you lose it. You, you can't, the blossoms fall. Um, so you can't be attached to the blossoms. How can you love the blossoms so much with your whole body and know that, that they're falling? How, how do you do this? And if you've lost both of your parents by the age of eight, how, how do you love? How do you hold on and really love somebody knowing that they're going to die, that your relationship with them is going to pass away? And Dogen says, you have to leap clear of this distinction. Yes, there's birth and death. Don't deny that there is birth and death. I think what he's actually saying is here is you know that place where there's no birth and death? It's impossible to live like that. You can't live like that. This whole ridiculous business these days of people, you know, focusing so much on non-dualism, I don't even want to use that term anymore. Because you, you can't live like that. You realize non-dualism only so you can live in the other way. And if you just live in the other way, you're missing it. You're attached and you're in aversion. You only realize non-dualism in order to live ordinary mind. That's the only reason why we push you to see what you are is so that you can clean dishes and take care of the city and take care of each other. Like a fish leaps clear. I love this notion of leaping clear. Have you ever seen this when a fish really gets up the nerve to go for it? And it just, its whole body just leaps clear of a current of samsara. But then what happens when you leap clear? You, you land back again in the current, but it's way more fun. Imagine that feeling on the fish's face when it's diving back in towards the water again. It leaps clear, and then it turns its body, and then it heads straight back down again. Or there's some fish, I watched this in Costa Rica a lot, they would leap clear, and then they would shake their body, and they would land on their side. And then they would do it again. And I used to imagine that they would land on one side, and it felt so good. Then they would land on the other side. Um, whales do this. right? They leap clear, and then they come back again. How many people do we know who are seeking oneness? And in the process, they're missing their whole lives. Because they, they want this oneness. 
that you can't live um, with all the time. And yet, um, the truth is, so this is the last line of this paragraph, um, in attachment, blossoms fall. And when we're caught in aversion, the weeds grow. Better to be attached and let things fall than to stay in that place where the weeds grow. But if you look really closely at weeds, a lot of them are actually blossoms. When you go walking in the woods around here, you will notice that many of the weeds that grow in southern Ontario are really good for you. You can steam them, you can fry them, you can add garlic and lemon. And at first, when you pick them up like nettles, like dandelion, they hurt. How many of us have picked nettles? Yeah, it really hurts. If you pinch hard enough, Aaron. <laughs> you pinch hard enough, then they don't, then they don't hurt. So um, the weed becomes the blossom. And even so, you can't hold on to it. I was sick and... Uh, Ronis showed up at my door with nettle soup. And I thought, like in my image, when she said nettle soup. And all I thought about was, what the hell are you trying to do to me? <laughs> like, why don't you just give me like a bowl of thorns? <laughs> and then you start eating the nettles. And oh, it's so soft. Actually, it goes softer than spinach. It's amazing. So I just want to end with one quote. <clears throat> this is a, a, from an anonymous uh, teacher. The reason why lotus flowers are not stained with mud is because they are free within the mud. Does everybody know what a lotus flower looks like? They're all over the place, near nettles, actually you'll find lotus flowers. They grow in the dirtiest swamp, and they're perfectly clean. And this explanation, the reason why lotus flowers are not stained by the mud is because they're free, not of the mud, but within the mud. You cannot be free of nettles. You cannot be free of blossoms. You cannot be free of rigidity but you can be free within your habits. I had a friend growing up. Um, both of her parents took their own lives within two years of each other. And she found both of them before she was 12. She was so introverted she could not be around more than one person at a time. 
And um, I remember just realizing in my time with her that being with two people, for her, if she could do that by the time she was 40, would be like the best she could do. And this would be kind of realization for her. That sometimes our conditions are so metal-like and you can't be free of them. How can you be free of that? Dogen lost his parents so young. How can you be free of that? But you, you can be free within it. And some of you, your bodies are never going to practice the third series of Ashtanga Yoga. There's only like certain body types that can do that. Most body types cannot do that. Um, most body types should not be even trying to do that. That's just not in your sphere, not in your idiom. Um, but you can still be free within that form. But it depends on your attitude. It depends if you're a Buddha or you're a sentient being. It depends if when the blossoms are present, you can really, really love them. And when the weeds are growing, you can really see them. Because you can't get rid of the weeds. <coughs> the reason why lotus flowers are not stained with mud is because they're free within the mud. And if I were to write this, I would say, because they're ordinary. They have embraced their ordinariness. They know who they are. They know what their sphere is. They don't, like a lotus flower is not trying to be a rose. It knows it can't be a rose. So somehow in evolution it realized I'm not going to be a rose and I'm not going to do third series. So I'm going to be really free with this muddy condition. And this afternoon we're going to go deeper into this and we're going to open it up to talk together about what's really going on here and to see that this is not philosophy. This is actually how we go about doing our practice. So we won't have questions now. We'll just take this insight into our lunch. Thank you.